Well, Compass, it is my absolute pleasure to be able to introduce uh, my friend, not just a colleague of mine. Uh, he's actually a mentor of, of, my, you know, of me and my wife. He actually officiated my own wedding, but I'm excited not only to have him preach here to you this morning, but also for God to use him and his team to be able to launch the new church plant up in the North Dallas area. And so what you can do right now is actually write out in your bulletin or your worksheet, Compass NTX, Compass NTX, N is in North TX as in the great state of Texas. But I'm excited because it's going to happen after the service. You're going to write that down and you're going to text it to a friend in the North, North Dallas area and you go, you need to go to this man's church because you're going to hear the word of God faithfully taught. And so without further ado, let me, let's give a good compass warm welcome to Pastor PJ Burner. Yeah, I... Uh... I got to officiate Pastor Evan's wedding to Candace, and we almost didn't make it, or I almost didn't make it, because uh, I met with them for the first time, and Pastor Evan was doing FCA at the time. And FCA is great, but our goal as the church is that we should be doing a lot of what FCA and some of the parachurch ministries are doing, right? So I, I had them in my office, and Evan's a big guy, right? Pastor Evan, he's a large individual. Candace, I, I've never really been afraid of Candace except for this one moment. Because I was sitting there with Pastor Evan, and I said, Pastor Evan, what are your future plans? He said, well, I, I'm just I'm doing FCA. I'm loving what I'm doing. And I said, well, why don't you come do real ministry in the church? And Candace, her eyes just flame of fire. She almost jumped across the table and came after me because uh, she was wanting to defend her fiancé. But we made it through, and Pastor Evan's doing ministry now, and we're grateful for that. And, uh, man, this place is awesome. You guys have a mandolin player up here for worship. Like, that immediately gives you street cred everywhere, and that's amazing. It's amazing. It's, uh, it's home for me to come back to Texas. I, uh, I come from California, but just, it's my wilderness wandering years, okay? I uh, I'm, I'm, was raised here in Dallas, in, uh, in North Texas. Uh, actually spent a year down here with my wife, uh, right out of college, served at a church down here, Dayspring Christian Fellowship, which I don't think is even a church anymore. Um, but we were there. I was a youth pastor there. And uh, so this is a, a homecoming, and we are excited to be planting a church out here. Uh, but I, no one needs to tell you that this area is growing, right? I mean, uh, even just coming down here on 35, I didn't recognize anything. And it had been 15 years since I had been down here, but recognized nothing. And, uh, and it's just exploding in growth. And, and North Dallas is the same. And it was that way even in the early 90s when my family and I moved out there. We would drive back and forth on the toll road going uh, up to our, our home and then down to different areas in Dallas, and, and we would always drive past this one spot that seemed to be out of place. And the reason it was out of place is because it was a farm. It was a, a working farm right off the toll road, some of those most valuable real estate in that area, and there were high-rises, and there were shopping centers, and there were homes and neighborhoods, and, and, and everything else all around this one singular farm. And I remember always asking my dad, Dad, what why doesn't that guy sell? And my dad, you know, he's of that generation that he's going, well, good for him. He shouldn't sell. You know, it's sticking to the man and everything else. And apparently the, the farmer's kids felt the same way because this farm called the Haggard Farm had been passed on from generation to generation to generation to generation. And they'd had plenty of offers. Plenty of people had come and said, hey, we want to build a, a, a new shopping center here. We want to build some apartments here. We want to build a new Costco here. We want to build whatever, another target here, because why not? There's a target across the street, but we need another target. So let's build another target. And they had thrown money and offers at this family for decades, generations, and every single time, generation after generation after generation, they'd been met with the same response. We're not going to sell. 
And when asked at one point, one of the, uh, the, the, the people that in, had inherited this property from their ancestors said this, we are stewards in what's been given to us. We're not investors. We're stewards. They had been given to them a, a farm. And a farm has open fields, and you're supposed to do something with those fields, aren't you? What are you supposed to do with a field? Sow and harvest. And that was the job. That was the task that had been entrusted with, to them and, and passed down from generation to generation to generation. And so the investors could come, and the, the realtors could come, and the developers could come and throw all kinds of offers at them. And yet time and time and time and time again, they'd be met with the same response. We're not going to sell. We have work to do. We have a harvest to, to a field to harvest. Well, church, we've been given a field to harvest. We've been entrusted with something that we've been given as a stewardship, not as an investment. God has not given us the, the fields that we've been entrusted with to see developed by the, the, the sprawl of the world. And yet, unfortunately, so often we've given over to that. We've allowed our harvest fields to be crowded out by the, the high-rises of the fear of man or the condominium complexes of the I'm too busy or the, uh, the, the target shopping center of the I'll get to it later on or someone else will share the gospel with that person. Instead, we need to understand that we have harvest fields that the Lord has entrusted to us that we need to steward, that we need to be sowing the gospel. We need to be reaping a harvest all for the good and the glory of Jesus Christ. If you're not already there, which I imagine you are after the scripture reading, but turn your Bibles to John chapter 4. And as we get into John chapter 4, just to catch up with where we've been in John to this point, John chapter 1 through 3, you have John's introduction, which is that, that glorious passage where he talks about, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1.14, we get John's birth account of Jesus, and it's one verse. It says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only begotten from the Father. And then in John chapter 2, you have Jesus at this family wedding in Cana. And you remember there was this situation where they ran out of wine. And Mary went to Jesus and said, Jesus, they're out of wine. And Jesus said, what does this have to do with me? But still, he turned the water to wine. And that was his first public miracle. And then after that, he goes down to Jerusalem. And he's down in Jerusalem. And he's at the temple. And he finds the temple has been turned into a house of of exchanging money and price gouging on sacrificial animals. So Jesus goes in, and just like all the Hallmark cards that show Jesus, he gets angry and flips the tables over, right? Precious moments, you guys have that Jesus figurine of him turning the tables over? No? That'd be an awesome one. If you find it, go ahead and send it up to us in North Texas. I'd love to add that to a collection that I don't have. But um, maybe I'd start collecting precious moments if Jesus was flipping the tables on one of them. But after that, he then goes into his, his public ministry more and and all of a sudden, this guy comes to him in John chapter 3, this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus comes to him and says, teacher, we know that you must be from God because we've been watching you. And no one can do the things that you're doing unless he comes from God. And Jesus has that whole interchange with Nicodemus, which we'll talk about a little bit more in our text. And then after that, Jesus goes out and he starts baptizing in the, the wilderness, although it says his disciples were baptizing, not him. And the Pharisees want to stir up trouble, so they try to pit Jesus against John. John the Baptist. And Jesus catches wind of this and says, okay, we're just going to leave. We're going we're gonna to go up to Galilee. But to get there, it says in the text, he had to, in John chapter 4, pass through Samaria. And that's what happens before the, the passage that we're going to read here in John chapter 4. Jesus meets a, a particular person at this well. He comes to the well after walking about 30 miles. And it says in the text, and we see the humanity of Christ as he sits down at the well because he's tired. 
and he sits down at the well and he sees a woman that's come to the water to, to draw water for herself there. She's by herself and she's alone. And he looks at her and says, hey, can you give me a drink? And that starts this whole conversation, this whole interaction between Jesus and this woman. And we find in the text that this woman is not just any woman, but she had come in the middle of the day because she wasn't really welcome to come when the rest of the women from her village came. Because this was not a woman of strong moral repute. This is a woman who Jesus had gone after and identified, hey, you know what, why don't you go call your husband? And as he pressed in on the nerve to try to get her to understand the depth of her need for Jesus and the forgiveness of sin, she said to him, I, I, sir, I, I have no husband. And Jesus said, well, you're right, because you've actually had multiple, and the man that you're with right now is not your husband. So now we see why this woman was at the, the well in the middle of the day by herself. See, she was a woman of immorality. And so Jesus engages the most unlikely of people, a Jewish man and, a, and an immoral Samaritan woman at the well, and they have this conversation. And at the end of the conversation, trying to kind of shift and, and, and move away from him, she says, sir, I know that when the Messiah comes, he will tell us all things. Well, Jesus had interacted with Nicodemus and the Pharisees and his disciples already in John chapter 1, 2, and 3. But you know the first person that he looks at and says, I am the Messiah? Pick up in verse 26. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. First person in John's gospel that Jesus says, hey, I'm the Christ. I'm the one you've been waiting for, the one you've been looking for, is this woman that the world had rejected. This woman that was mired in her sin and her shame. This woman who had nothing to offer to Jesus. She's the first one that Jesus comes to and says, I'm the one. In fact, in the Greek, it's I who speak to you. Maybe this sounds familiar from the Old Testament. I am. That's what Jesus says. And so powerful is this moment that the woman leaves her water jar. We'll come back to that in just a second. And she takes off to go back to her village because she has to tell people about Jesus. Well, in the meantime, the disciples come back. You see, Jesus had come from this long journey, walking over 30 miles, and he sat down by the well, and he was thirsty, and they were hungry, and there was no Whataburger, and there was no In-N-Out, and there was no Rudy's Barbecue in first century Israel by the well. So the disciples said, we'll go into town and get some food, teacher, why don't you hang out by the well? They had been gone. They come back as he's finishing this interaction with this woman, and it says in the text that they were marveling that he was talking with this woman. Just when his disciples came back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Now, you might say, well, why? Well, some of it we've already talked about, right? This was a woman of, of immorality. And even just judging on the time of day and the fact that she was there by herself, the disciples would have put two and two together there. But it goes deeper than that because there was rabbinical tradition that really made it taboo for a Jewish rabbi, and Jesus held that, that, that position, at least in perception at this time, and certainly for his disciples, but there were cultural taboos for a Jewish rabbi to engage in conversation with a woman, even with his wife, for a prolonged period of time. In fact, the rabbinical teaching said this, a man shall not be alone with a woman in an inn, not even with his sister or his daughter, on account of what men might think. A man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife, and especially not with another woman on account of what men may say. In fact, the rabbis went on to teach, you know what, for a rabbi, he shouldn't even really talk to his wife for a long period of time at all because he could spend his time better by studying the scriptures. So ladies, we've come a long way, yes? But the disciples come back, and this is their culture. And they come back, and they, they marvel that he's talking with this woman. And yet the text says they didn't say anything to him. And we're not sure why. It's not like the disciples were bashful. 
Remember in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 18, Jesus is entertaining the children. The children are coming to Jesus. And the disciples come on the scene. They say, leave him alone. He has more important things to do. Take these kids to the kids' men room. They don't need to be around Jesus. But Jesus says what? Don't, don't send them away. Allow the children to come to me. So it's not as though the disciples were, were bashful, but they, they choose not to speak up here. And the attention in John here, it, it shifts back to the woman. It says there as we keep reading, So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, and we'll get to her message in just a second, but think for a moment. I just talked about the type of woman this was. The reason she wasn't there in the morning in the cool of the day with the other ladies in the, in the town is she wasn't welcome. So she had to come when nobody else would be at the, the well because of her shame and because of her guilt and because of the stigma that hung over her. So she comes out in the heat of the day, brings her own water jar, fills it up at the well. She's sitting there. She has this interaction with this man. And so pow- excuse me, don't know what happened there. But anyways, so powerful was this interaction with Jesus that she leaves her jar and she goes. Okay, Costco, right? Costco's about 20 minutes away down in Selma from here, yes? Imagine it's Thanksgiving Day and, or the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And, and you're getting the turkey out and then you realize that you've got extra family coming in town and you bought the small turkey, not the big turkey. You're going, oh no, I need to get more turkey for people. So you jump in your car, you drive down to, to, to the Costco and you get out and you go inside and you rush to the back with your car and it's wall-to-wall people, right? Costco, any time of day will remind you any day of the year of total depravity, right? If you doubt total depravity, just go to Costco, especially though around the holidays, right? Like it is cutthroat in there. You will see grandmas taking out little kids in there to get what they need to get for their stuffing. So imagine you're there in Costco, you're fighting through, you get to the back of the store and you see there's one last turkey and you grab it and you, you have disqualified yourself from ministry in the process of getting this turkey, right? And you've wrestled it into your cart, and you've left a trail of people behind you, and you've got it in the cart, and you've got your cranberry sauce, the ones that come in the cans, because that's the only legitimate cranberry sauce. If your cranberry sauce doesn't have ridges, you're doing it wrong. Can I just tell you that? Like, we need to come to Jesus' conversation. It needs to have ridges, and it needs to jiggle. Okay? Otherwise, it's not, it's not, it's not it. You've got all that. It's in your cart. You're ready to go. And you're, you're coming back to the front, and you get in line, and you're almost to the front of the register. It's been six days now, and you're almost to the front of the register. What would it take you, what kind of news would you have to hear to leave that cart behind and go back home? What, would it, what kind of news would you have to have receive for you to throw away all of the work that you just did to secure that? That's a, a, a tiny glimpse into what we're dealing with here. This woman had gone out because she needed water. This is something that she needs to live. This is a a, a necessity. They didn't have running water at home. She's at the well because she needs drinking water. She fills up her jar. She's got it. She's ready to go. And all of a sudden, there's this rabbi that distracts her for a minute. What must that encounter have been like to cause her to leave the jar and to go back home? It's a shocking scene, and yet we kind of glaze over it. And then also notice she goes back home and it says in the text, and says to the people, what people? These are the people she was trying to avoid. 
These were the people she didn't want to be around. These were the people that gave her side-eye glances. These were the people that called her names. These were the people that judged her. These were the people that looked down on her for her sin. And now she's going and not running from them, but now she's seeking them. All because what? Because of who she met at the well. And she goes back, and what's her message? Come see. Come see. If you read John's gospel, this is a message we've seen earlier in John's gospel. In fact, John the Baptist was a man who had his own disciples and followers because he was preparing the way for Jesus. But then Jesus gets there and Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist stands back and he looks at his disciples and he says, hey, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the disciples are a little slow because it says the next day Jesus was walking by again and John said, hey guys, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, John's saying, he's the guy. Go after him. He's the one I've been telling you about. Well, a couple of the disciples, they, they, they hear John's message, and they get it, and they begin to follow Jesus. And Jesus stops, and Jesus turns around and looks at them, and he says to them, what do you seek? And his disciples say, we want to be with you. Where are you staying? And Jesus looks at these two disciples, and he says, come and see. Later on, in John chapter 1, you've got Philip and Nathaniel, and Philip has encountered Jesus and met Jesus, and, and Philip goes to find his friend Nathaniel and, and finds him laying under a tree, and, and Philip goes up to Nathaniel and says, hey, Nathaniel, we found the one. We found the one who Moses and the prophets talked about. We found the, the, the Messiah. And Nathaniel looks at Philip, and he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip looks at Nathaniel and says, come and see Come and see, right? This is the, the, the invitation, and it's an evangelistic invitation. And now it's coming from the mouth of the woman at the well as she goes back to her townspeople, and she says, you know what? Come and see. Come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the one? There's a, a bit of skepticism still with her. There's cautious optimism, and she says, could this be the Christ? Could this be the one? Andreas Kostenberger comments on John's contrast here between chapter 3 with Nicodemus and chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And he lays out this contrast and he says, here in Nicodemus you had a, a man who in that culture and that society would have been elevated over in the Samaritan woman, a, a woman. And then he says, beyond that you had Nicodemus who was a, a Jew, who again would have been held in higher esteem than the Samaritan woman who was a woman of Samaria. Then you have Nicodemus, who is the teacher of Israel, compared to this woman who is unnamed. And then you have Nicodemus, who is a member of the Sanhedrin, part of the, the ruling party of the Jewish people, held clout and sway and authority. And here you have this woman who has no position, no title, no honor. And then you have Nicodemus, who is an expert in the scriptures. One of the Pharisees knew the law backwards and forwards, had it memorized, had it treasured up, knew how to teach it and how to handle it. And then you have the woman who was steeped in Samaritan folklore and tradition. You have Nicodemus, the epitome of morality, a Pharisee, right? Think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians when he says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to righteousness found under the law, I was blameless. That's Nicodemus. And then you have the woman at the well who is the epitome of immorality. Then you have Nicodemus come to Jesus by night. And you have the woman come to Jesus in the middle of the day. 
Kostenberger goes on, he says, humanly speaking, Nicodemus towers over the Samaritan in every respect, yet John shows a dramatic reversal when it comes to spiritual understanding. And I just think that's such good news, isn't it? That Jesus isn't reserved for the ivory towers. Jesus is not reserved for the the holiest of holy. The message of the gospel is not, hey, clean yourself up and then Jesus will be interested in you. Jesus is is not reserved for those that are are righteous and so therefore they can understand. See, the gospel is for us when God chooses to make it for us. When God chooses to open our eyes so that we can see. And so this woman goes and says, come, come and see, come and see. I think this is him. And then it continues in the text. They, these people in the town, they went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. Think for a moment how persuasive this woman must have been. Again, her background, her immorality, the the problems that she had, the the reputation that she had in this community, and yet they're listening to her. They're going. They're following her. They're going to see for themselves. They must have seen an immense joy about this woman that, that was so powerful that caused them to overlook all of the cultural taboos about her, that caused them to believe her testimony, even though at the time the testimony of a woman was not held in, in much authority, even if she was a, a moral woman. And it, they, they look past all of that and they say, okay, yes, let's go, let's see. Because clearly something has happened to you that's caused you to be this excited. You've met someone and let's go see who this one is that's out by the well. When we look at the scene taken all together, this encounter left her so excited, she forgets her temporal need for water. She leaves it behind. She forgets the stigma and the shame and the guilt that hung over her, and she goes and and the people she tried to hide from, she now seeks out. The people she would never address with, with a greeting even, she is now saying, hey, come and see the one that I found. And my question for us this morning is, does Jesus make us that excited? Are we that passionate about telling other people about Jesus? Are you that fired up about the fact that you worship a Savior who died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, who rose from the grave so that you can live with him forever and has given you his spirit to follow him as your king? Are you that excited about her? Him, not her. Edit that. Don't tell Pastor Hayden about that one. Are you that excited, right? We need to be, and and that's our first point this morning is to think about that, that we need to rediscover the excitement of finding Jesus. We need to rediscover, point number one, the excitement of finding Jesus. There's moments in life that can cause us to experience so much excitement and joy that we just feel like we have to share it with people, right? If you're an Astros fan, they won the World Series last night. Congratulations to you. As a diehard, lifelong Rangers fan, I cannot share in your excitement. But hey, at least they didn't cheat for this one that we know of yet. I don't know, Altuve may have had the buzzer under his jersey again. But they won the World Series. But back in 2011, when the Rangers used to be good, uh, the Rangers were in the World Series. And uh, my son was two, and so we sat down, my wife and I, to, to watch the games, Game 6. It's still hard for me to get those words out of my mouth. So we sat down to watch Game 6, and we had put my son to bed, and we said, okay, why don't you, uh, let's, let's, let's put him down and let's, let's watch the, the game. And we're watching the game, and things are going really well early on. And we finally get to the ninth inning. It's the the top of the ninth inning. The Rangers are one strike away from their first World Series. One strike! So I looked at my wife, and I said, I got to wake up my son. She's like, come on, he's asleep. I said, yeah, but he's about to witness history. The Rangers are about to win the first World Series in their franchise. 
I said, so I, I got to get him up. I got to share this moment with him. So I went, I got up my son. He was two. He had no idea what was going on. <laughs> Blurry-eyed, groggy as possibly can be. And I bring him out, and I sit him down on the couch with me, and I'm like, Joshua, you're about to witness history. You're about to see the, the Rangers win the world. And I was just overjoyed. And that night, Joshua did not witness history. He saw his daddy broken. <laughs> because David Freeze, boo David Freeze, hit a ball, and, and it boo Nelson Cruz. Nelson Cruz misplayed it, and it went over his head. And the rest is history. The Rangers lost game six. They lost game seven. And now the Astros are winning World Series. So... <laughs> But that joy and excitement that I felt about my son sharing in that moment of, hey, we're about to see what I thought was going to be the, the best moment of my sports fandom life turned into a tragedy. That joy and excitement, y'all, we need to bring that to, to our relationship with Jesus. Right? We need to be, people need to, to feel that when they're with us. Why are you the way that you are? Because I love Jesus. Because let me tell you what he's done for me. Let me tell you how excited I am about Jesus. Right? Psalm 51, 12, David, in the, the wake of his sin with Bathsheba, he's now repented, and it's this glorious prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And towards the end of it, he says this, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Remind me of the glorious joy of knowing that I am yours, that I am saved, that I am forgiven, that Christ has died for me, right? That's what, what we need to rediscover right now. I wonder what's the last bit of news you received that you just felt like, man, I have to share this with someone. If someone today wrote you a check for $1,000 just on the street and just handed it to you, it was like, here, I, I just want to do something nice for you, here's $1,000, how many people would you call and tell? If Elon Musk showed up at church this morning and walked in and was like, hey, everybody in the room gets Teslas, you get a Tesla, you get a Tesla, I mean, who would you be calling? Who would you be talking to? Let's remind ourselves for a minute what Jesus has done for us. Because it's far greater than either of those situations. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. The Apostle Paul describes what Christ has done for us. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And here it is. He emptied himself. He veiled his, the fullness of his divine glory by taking on flesh. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He, the son of God, the second member of the Trinity, God, very God in the flesh, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because of what Paul's written elsewhere. For the wages of sin is what? Death. And that's a death that you and I can't pay. That's a death that would take an eternity in hell, separated from the full glory of God under the full weight of his wrath. Right? That death, Christ died for us. The wrath of God, the, the fullness of its cup, was poured out upon Christ at the cross so that there is not a drop left for a believer. So that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because of the ultimate good and faithful servant. Right, we are righteous with Christ's righteousness. And I'm asking you this morning, church, does that make you excited? Does that bring you joy? Does that fire you up as much as the Astros winning the World Series last night? 
Are you more apt to, to go to work next week and talk about the, the series that, that Verlander had? Are you more apt to go to work next week and talk about what Christ has done for you? Again, this woman, she leaves her water jar behind. She leaves cultural taboos behind. She leaves fear, anxiety, and shame behind. And she goes to tell other people about Jesus. She can't help it. And y'all, we need to get that. We need to have that. We need to hold that. We need to recapture that if we've lost it. And to go and tell other people about Jesus. Y'all, when I proposed to my wife, I could not wait to tell as many people as I possibly could. I have no idea why she said yes, but she did. And praise God, she did, right? And I wanted to just blast it from the, the mountaintops. It was such good news. I could not wait to, to share that news with other people. As good of news as that was for me, the news that Jesus Christ died for my sins so that I'd be forgiven and rose from the dead so I can live with him forever and giving me his spirit so I can follow him as my king. You know, that news is better. And am I sharing that news like I shared the news that she said yes? Jesus is ever the teacher, though, and, and he sees this woman go, and he knows, being God, what she's going to do. That she's going to go tell them, and, and that they're going to come back. But in the meantime, he's with his disciples there. And remember, they're slack job, Their mouths are on the floor right now. And Jesus is going to use this moment to teach them something. Pick back up in verse 31. It says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Yeah, they're concerned about him. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So the disciples say, hey, Rabbi, we got you a number four with some fries and a large Dr. Pepper. You need to take this, eat it. You need strength, right? We've been walking. They still had about another couple 10, 20 miles left on their journey. Eat this food. You need strength. And Jesus says, I have food that you do not know about. In John's gospel, another common theme is, is that he, Jesus is, does rather, tries to take people from the physical realm to the, the spiritual realm. And he's done it a couple times already, not super successfully, and also, again, here with the disciples, not super successfully. See, with Nicodemus, you remember Nicodemus came to Jesus, and, and Jesus said to him the statement, hey, unless a man is what? Born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus looks at Jesus like he's crazy, and he says, uh, how can a grown man enter his mother's womb a second time, right? Which is impossible. Titus is here. Titus isn't going back. Titus is here, right? And Kayla's thankful for that, Yes? So, so Nicodemus, as Jesus is trying to get him to the spiritual realm to see that he's talking about spiritual birth, Nicodemus stays on the, the realm of the, the, the physical. And then he comes to the woman at the well. And at the woman at the, the well, she comes out for water. And Jesus says to her, you know what? If you knew the one who, offer, who asked you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink. And he would give you water that would well up into eternal life. You would never have to come back to this well to draw again. And the woman, instead of going to the spiritual realm, stays on the, the physical realm doesn't quite get it, right? She says, where's this well? Are you greater than our father Abraham? Well, now Jesus is doing the same thing with the disciples. He says, you know what? I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they say, who brought him food? Did you bring him food? I didn't bring him food. I was with you guys the whole time. Did she have food? I don't think she had food. I didn't see any food. See, they're staying on the physical instead of coming with Jesus to where he wants them to get. So he explains. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, my food, my desire, what I crave, you want to know what satisfies me, it's to do the will of God. 
the will of him who sent me. This is a theme that John is going to develop, that Jesus is going to develop in the chapters, coming chapters of John. John chapter 5, verse 30, Jesus says, I seek not my own will, but the will of my Father. I'm here to do his will. That's what I want to do. John 6, 38 says, I've come to do the will of my Father. And even this context of comparing that to food harkens back to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, which says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every what? Word that proceeds from the mouth of God to do his will. Later in John chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus is going to commend the same thing to his followers, to us. He's going to say, don't work for the food that perishes, but seek the food that produces eternal life. What's the food that produces eternal life, Jesus? He's talking about it right here. It's to do the will of him who sent him, to do the will of the Father. And the same holds true for you and I this morning. What should be the thing that we crave? What should be the thing that we desire? What should bring us more satisfaction than anything else, even Texas barbecue? Which is so good, by the way. Californians have no clue about barbecue. They just don't. Texas is, has a, they've got it down. But even better than brisket smoked for, for days, right? What's better than that? To do the will of the Father. To do the will of God. Pertaining to what? Well, specifically in our context, Jesus is going to provide that answer for us. Look at verses 35 and 36. Jesus turns to the, the concept of the harvest, and he tells this parable. He says, Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See, the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus quotes a, a proverb that was known to them at, at, at that time. He says, do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Commentators, sometimes commentators argue about things that don't need to be argued about, right? And they, they waste a lot of ink doing that. And so there are guys that are like, well, the harvest is actually six months and not four months. And so we need to figure out what Jesus, look, Jesus' point is this. You plant the seed and what? There's time that has to pass before you get to reap the harvest. Nobody plants the seed and goes out the next day and is like, well, where's my corn? It's supposed to be here. He says, don't you say, hey, you know what? This act of harvesting, sowing, reaping, it takes time. Four months and then comes the harvest. There's a delay when it comes to farming, to sowing and reaping. But Jesus is introducing a contrast here. He says, but I tell you, lift up your eyes and see. He's emphatic here. He's saying, behold, look, see that the fields are white for harvest. The harvest that Jesus has in mind doesn't require the same patience that an actual physical, literal harvest requires. See, the harvest that Jesus has in mind is not a harvest of wheat, but a harvest of souls, a harvest of people. And he's saying it's, it's time to join together both the one who sows and the reaps. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. Look at this. Sower and reaper rejoice together. Typically at that time, sower and reaper didn't rejoice together. The sower sowed, and then later on they would have reapers go out and bring the harvest in. But the sower didn't participate in the joy of the reaper because there was such a big gap between the two. Jesus' point is the type of harvest that I'm talking about here. Man, it's happening on the fly. There's people sowing, and now we're reaping, and now we're sowing and reaping again, and it's just, we're going out, and the field's white. Just keep, just go after it. He's trying to get them motivated here. He's saying the one who reaps is already receiving wages. 
It's interesting because there's another harvest that's going to be yet future. Revelation chapter 14 depicts the harvest that's a judgment harvest, right? That the sickle is thrown out. And this, this is a, 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 a harvest not to salvation but unto judgment. Well, right now, y'all, we get to participate and be God's laborers, God's workers to harvest not for judgment but for salvation. And that's the harvest that we're talking about. And so Jesus is calling his disciples to say, hey, look, this is, is, you want to know what the will of the Father is? The fields are white for harvest. The fields are white for harvest. And, and in the back of his mind, I'm sure he's thinking, this woman has already gone out to reap. She's gone out to, to harvest with the Samaritans that she's going to. And he's trying to help the disciples understand that this is the work of a disciple. The work of a disciple is to follow his master. And his master is saying, my joy is to do the will of my Father. And you know what, want to know what that entails? That entails reaping the harvest that's ready to be brought in. We all, just like the white fields that Jesus wanted his disciples to see, if he was here with us this morning, he'd be saying, look, behold, see, your fields are white for harvest. Our second point this morning is this, identify your white fields. Identify your white fields. For every single one of you in this room, I, I guarantee you, I know you have a couple of white fields. The first one that all of us share in common is our dinner table. Whether you're sitting down with family members, with kids, or with roommates, or just friends, those that you live with, in other words, are, are part of the white fields that God has entrusted to you. Are you looking? Are you sowing? Are you reaping? Parents, grandparents, siblings, aunts, uncles, are you engaged in sowing and in, in reaping the harvest? That's one. The other harvest field that we all have are the houses or the units that are surrounding the place that we live. There's a book that I would commend to you called The Art of Neighboring. The Art of Neighboring. And in this book, there's a, a diagram that's helpful. You can get it from their, their website, uh, theartofneighboring.com, I think is what it is. And it, it's one that you can print out, and it shows your house in the middle and then nine squares surrounding that house. And those nine squares represent the nine neighbors most close to you and your family. Whether those are units, if you're in an apartment above you, below you, next to you, or if you're in a neighborhood, those are houses across the street to the left and right behind you. And the author there challenges us in, in that book to, to say, I need to know at least three things about all nine of those houses around me. First thing I need to know, this is low-hanging fruit, I need to be able to know the names of all of my neighbors that fill in that diagram there. Who are they? What are their names? Second thing I need to know is, is a little bit more that might be a, a passing conversation in the hallway of the apartment building or a conversation in the front yard of saying, hey, what do you do for a living? How many kids do you have? Noticing what kind of car they drive, things like that, and, and you're kind of getting that second level of information. The third level of information then that we need to pursue and go after is that level of saying, hey, what are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your ambitions? What are your fears? Hey, what do you think about God? Have you ever been to church? Yeah? You don't go to church anymore? Why not? Can I ask that? What, what, what led you to, to go back? Would you be willing to, to, to come and, and see? And so that's a white harvest field that we have. Here's another one. Maybe you're uh, somebody who's, who's working full-time. You've got a white harvest field there. You've got people in the offices next to you. You've got cubicles next to you. And you may say, yeah, but, but man, pastor, I, I don't know. What if I get fired for sharing the gospel? Remember what this woman was risking by going back to the people that 
were part of her community to tell them about Jesus. And if somebody's salvation costs you your temporal job, I'm not saying you should welcome that and, and be masochistic and pursue that, but at the same time, I'm saying maybe there's some significant eternal reward that's going to be stored up in the process. Maybe you're in retail, the, the people made in the register next to you, behind you, right? They need to hear, come and see. Just like this woman, come and see, come and see, come and see. And Jesus says this, for here the saying holds true, one sows, another reaps. That's the beauty of the community of Christ working together, isn't it? That you are, are sowing and reaping and some are watering and, and, and it's all to, towards the end that we're rejoicing together, that sower and reaper may rejoice together. Verse 38, I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. He's telling the disciples, you're going to go out and you're going to go out and, and, and harvest souls that other people sowed for that other people prayed for, that other people taught, that other people exhorted. I sent you out into the, the fields to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you get to enter into their labor. You get to share in. You get to enjoy the benefits of their labor. My kids are finally at that glorious age where they're old enough to do the dishes and not break anything. So we task them with that. My two oldest, one of you loads and the other one unloads. And that's the favorite thing for them to fight about. Whose loading day, whose unloading day is it? And we just sit back and we go, well, that's not our job. You guys figure that out. It just has to get done, right? But sometimes, because we have a relatively large family, there's seven of us, my wife and I and our five kids, sometimes there's a lot of dishes. And I will often take pity most of the time on the girl more than the boy. And I'll jump in and, and I'll do some of the dishes ahead of time. And I'll get them clean and, and put them in the dishwasher and I'll leave some for her. But I'll say, Annie, I, I did the majority of it. You can finish out the rest. That's entering into the joy of someone else's labor. So that what she has to do is very minimal. And she gets to finish the job, complete the job, and stand back with the satisfaction that the job's done when really her dad did the majority of the heavy lifting there, right? Y'all, you and I oftentimes are entering into the joy of other people's labor when we share the gospel with someone. We're entering into the joy of someone else's labor when, when we see somebody repent from their sins and put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Maybe it's that somebody else shared the gospel with them years and years and years ago. Maybe it's that they've got family members that have been praying for them for decades. Maybe it's that they've got a pastor that's been preaching for years to them and, and, and calling for them to put their trust in Jesus. Whatever it may be. If nothing else, you're entering into the joy of the one who's doing the, all the heavy lifting, and that's who? God. Right? Because guess what? There's no notches in our belt when it comes to salvation. Every single salvation is a notch in his belt. We're the mouthpiece. He's the one that does the heavy lifting. 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the eyes of the lost to keep them from seeing the glory of the light of Jesus Christ. Guess who removes the scales? It's not you and me. It's God. He does the heavy lifting. We get to enter into that joy. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 3, 5-9, through 9, when he's right into the Corinthian church, and they're breaking up, and they're dividing according to their favorite pastor. He's going, will you stop it? He says, what is, what's Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed is the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Here it is in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. How cool is that? We are God's fellow workers. We get to enter into his labor. We get to be his mouthpiece. We get to go with freedom and joy and call people to follow Jesus. Hey, come and see. And you might be looking at somebody, your neighbor, your, 
your son, your daughter, your, your, your spouse, and be going, I just don't, I know them, and I just don't think there's any way that they are going to answer the call to come and see. Well, guess what? You've got a God bigger than they are stubborn, and he can open their eyes. And if it's been 100 times, go 101 times, because we don't know when. Our job is to go, you know what? You're in my white field, and if you're in my white field, I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you. And so this week, some of you will have the opportunity to sow. This week, others of you in this room will have the opportunity to to reap. And guess what? We all get to rejoice together, church. I mean, that should be something that we're talking with each other on Sunday mornings about. Hey, can I tell you about a gospel conversation I had? Will you pray for the seed to grow? Will you pray for God to cause the growth? Hey, can I tell you about a, a conversation I had with somebody who repented and put their faith in Jesus? Will you celebrate and rejoice with me in that. But here's the kicker, y'all. You know what we got to do to be able to have those conversations? We got to answer Jesus' call in verse 35. Look, behold, see, the fields are white for harvest. We got to recognize our harvest fields if we're going to have these moments of joy and celebration. This week, you will have opportunities, divine appointments, to share the gospel with people who need to hear about Jesus Christ. Will you see the field is white for harvest? At this point, the focus shifts back to the Samaritans because they're now showing up. Verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You guys remember Billy Mays? Yes? Not head nods? Yeah? Okay. Yeah, Billy Mays, I, when I would stay home sick from school, I would watch SportsCenter until I had all of the highlights memorized, and then I would look for Billy Mays. Like, he'd be selling OxyClean. You guys remember that, right? And he'd, like, dip the... the the shirt and coffee and blood and everything else nasty he could find. Then he'd put it in the tub of OxyClean and swirl it around and pull it out and it was white. And you just sat there and you knew what was going to happen every time. And you're you're still amazed. That's amazing, right? Why? Because he was good at his job. He was a salesman and he was convincing. He must have come from this woman's lineage. Because it says many believed because of the woman's testimony. Remember, This is not like the most upstanding human being on the face of the planet. And they're believing that Jesus is the Messiah because of what she's telling them. But then they they say, yeah, let's, let's go see. Show us. It says, so when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Okay. You may be thinking, okay, yeah, sure. If I'm around Jesus, I want him to stay with me. Remember the cultural context. These are Samaritans. Jesus was what? A Jew. They did not like each other. The Samaritans believed in the the first five books of the, the Old Testament, and that's it, period, end of story, the Torah. They had their own conception of the Messiah that they were believing in and waiting for. And you know what? It wasn't expected that he would be a Jewish Messiah. And so for them to come around to the understanding and the idea that Jesus is the Messiah as they're going to say here momentarily, the savior of the world, this is monumental and massive. And for them to invite a Jewish rabbi to stay with them is massive. It makes you wonder what, how amazing is it to be in the presence of Jesus? That all of their tradition, all of their family history and lineage just fades away because they just want to be with Jesus. 
Luke chapter 24, you remember that? When, when Jesus walks up on the two guys on the road to Emmaus and they're downcast and he comes up and he says, why so glum, chums? And they look at him and they say, well, clearly you don't understand, but they just crucified Jesus, Jesus. And we thought he was going to be the one. And you remember the rest of the story? Jesus says, oh, foolish one, slow of heart to believe. All that's written in the prophets. Isn't it necessary that the Son of God must suffer before he enters into his glory? And it says, and then starting with Moses and the prophets, he explained everything to them in the scriptures as it pertains to him. And then later on, their eyes are opened and they, they, they realize, whoa, oh man, that was Jesus. And after kicking themselves for going, man, what did we say? They say this, didn't our hearts burn within us when we were with him? See, even without realizing who it was, there was something about being in his presence that was just spectacular. I think we see that here with the Samaritans. But notice it says that many more believed because of his what? His word. Many more believed in him because of his word. Initially, they believed because of the Samaritan woman. Now they believe because of Jesus. Now they believe because they had met the one that transformed the Samaritan woman's life. Now they believe because they had heard the word that saves. Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul says, All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then he says, how are they going to call on him unless they what? Believe in him. How are they going to believe in him unless they what? Hear. Hear what? Hear the word. The word of Christ. The word that saves. The word that transforms. The gospel. That, that's got to be there. And, and for these Samaritans, you know what? They got it face to face. For you and I, we heard it through a conduit. We heard it through a faithful servant of Jesus that came to us and said, hey, I need to tell you about Jesus. I need to step on your toes a little bit by telling you, hey, you know what? You're a sinner. But the good news is Jesus died on the cross so that your sins can be forgiven. He rose from the dead so that you can live with him forever. And he's given you his spirit so that you can follow him as your king. Will you repent and put your trust in Jesus as your savior? See, that's, that's the word of Christ that saves and transforms and impacts and revolutionizes. And that's the word that saved these Samaritans, and that's the word that saves us, and that's the word that's going to save everybody else in our white fields. And so as we go out, that's the message we go out with. Our final point this morning is this, trust the word to change hearts. Trust the word to change hearts. And y'all, sometimes this happens quickly, like it appears to have happened quickly with the Samaritans. They're, they're there with Jesus, and they're like, whoa, this is the guy. And some of you have experienced that. You've shared the gospel with someone, and they are right there. And, and it's like, okay, let's do this. And you're like, really? Right, right now? Yes, I'm ready. What do I need to do? What must I do to be saved? Other times it happens slowly, doesn't it? Take Nicodemus, right? You know where Nicodemus ends up, don't you? He ends up at the tomb. He ends up helping to bury Jesus. So with Nicodemus, it's a gradual progression from that moment in John chapter 3 where he didn't get it and went away going, what was that guy talking about? All the way to where he's helping to bury Jesus, and I trust one day we will get to know him in heaven, that he becomes one of Jesus' followers. See, sometimes the word of Christ transforms in a moment. Other times it transforms in years and decades. And so let me encourage you, church, if you've got somebody that you've had your sight set on and the gospel has been locked in with them and you've been pursuing them, don't give up. Don't give up. Don't quit sharing. Don't quit praying. 
Don't write them off and say, well, it's not going to be for them. It may be. I know we wish that God would transform hearts the same way every time, and that would be according to our schedule and our timetable. But here's the good news, y'all. The, the message doesn't need to change. It's not like you need some new gimmick. It's not like you need some approach. The Apostle Paul said, you know what I didn't do? I didn't touch the word. I didn't tamper with it. I wasn't about to practice cunning with it. You know what I, know what I did? I just kept preaching it. I determined to know nothing among you except what? Christ and him crucified. Why? Because that's what saves it's the word of Christ that softens the hardest of hearts. It's the word of Christ that stands up to the most ardent skeptic. It's the word of Christ that absorbs the blows from the most hostile atheist. It's the word of Christ that penetrates the facade of self-righteousness. It's the word of Christ that exposes false gospels. It's the word of Christ that convinces and persuades and convicts a lost world that they need to repent and trust in Jesus as their Savior. And that's our message. And so should we share our testimonies? 100% absolutely yes and amen to that. But here's the deal, y'all. It's not about the fact that you used to be strung out on drugs and now you're worshiping Jesus. It's not about the fact that you used to be self-righteous and now you're worshiping Jesus. It's about what changed you to make you that way. That's the power. The power isn't in your transformation, but the word of your transformation, which is the gospel. And that's what we've been given, right, y'all? It's right here. This is the word. We have it. Cover to cover, it's about who? It's about Jesus. And it's about going to share the gospel to a lost world to say, hey, you know what? I got good news for you. Hey, inflation's up. We don't know what's going on with midterms. We don't know what's going on in this world. It's crazy. There's war. There's... Let me give you something you can rely on and trust in. Can I tell you about Jesus? You don't know this, but you're in my white field. And guess what? You're not going to be able to get out of it. I'm coming after you. You tell me no today, we're going to grab coffee tomorrow. Because the word is that which we trust to transform. The Apostle Paul said it in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? Come on. It's the power, right? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's why you guys don't need to be the most gifted speaker, most powerful person. You don't have to look a certain way. You know why? Because you're not saving people. The gospel is saving people. So if you know the gospel, you know everything that you need to see anyone that you come across come to faith in Jesus. Because that's the power. That farm back in Plano, I, I, I don't know how much it's worth. There was an offer back in 2010 for seven and a half million. So factoring in inflation, that's like seven and a half trillion today. Maybe just a little bit of an exaggeration. Unfortunately, I, it looks like the, the current owners are going to sell it. And it's going to be developed. And they're, they're trying to soften the blow of the developers. They're like, well, we're going to make it have this really cool farm kind of a vibe. And you're sitting there going, you know what else has a really cool farm kind of a vibe? A farm. <laughs> but the greatest tragedy is in a few years, that harvest field is going to be gone the sprawl of the world will have won out. And now where once seed was sown and, and fruit was harvested, by the way, I heard that this building used to be a seed factory. That's super cool. Because now you're going out and sowing different kind of seed, aren't you? 
once was this field where seed was sown and, and a harvest was reaped is now going to be a shopping center and a place for girls to take Instagram pictures together. Can I encourage you, church, not to let your harvest field be crowded out by the sprawl of the cares of the world? Every single one of us in this room are farmers. You've all been given a field. You've all got a harvest to bring in that God is preparing for you. And we get to enter into his work. We get to be his fellow workers. And we get to have the joy of seeing souls come to know Jesus Christ as a result of the fact that God has placed them by divine appointment into our harvest fields. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for that reality. Each and every one of us in this room who are believers in Jesus were part of someone else's field at one point, and we are grateful for that. Thankful that they were faithful to sow the seed in our life, that they might be able to, to reap it as you caused the, the growth to take place. God, I pray that we would sort of, so to speak, pay it back by saying we've got to go out now and, and sow seed ourselves and call for a verdict ourselves on this person called Jesus and what he's done for us. And so, God, give us eyes to see the lost around us. Give us a heart that has a love and a compassion for them, a desire to see them come to faith in Jesus. Lord, make this church a place of overflowing joy as there are countless souls that are added that will boast in the, the glorious reality of the gospel that you saved us through giving Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, through emptying the tomb, rising, raising him from the dead so that we can live with him forever and certainly giving us your spirit to follow you as our king. So God, we want to go with that message. We want to see people saved. And, and so we pray that you would increase the fruit from our harvest field. Give us eyes to see, Lord, so that we might reach more for Christ, for his glory. And we pray this in his name. Amen.